From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. China's amazing economic growth has come at a huge cost to its ecosystems, and its government now says it's time to factor in environmental damage when taking the pulse of the economy. The move is drawing praise and raising eyebrows. Frankly, I take the attitude of I'll believe it when I see it. And I think the Chinese who are involved in this process have acknowledged themselves that uh, it's going to be a very difficult and complicated process. Also, how counting the costs of pollution and resource depletion could change how we figure the gross domestic product here in the U.S. The value to society uh, of that ton of coal in GDP terms it would be about $17 for West Virginia coal. In green income terms, it would be about $5.50. Green accounting practices and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. We turn our attention this week to the emerging giant, China. Over the past decades, China has been growing its economy twice as fast as the United States, churning out everything from clothing and car parts to computer chips and coal plants. In the process, America has become one of China's biggest customers, and China has become one of America's biggest creditors. We're running up a tab to the Chinese of over $100 billion a year. The U.S. debt to China is likely to have an impact on food prices here in the United States in the years ahead, and we'll have more on that later in the broadcast. But first, we turn our attention to the toll that rapid economic growth is taking on China's environment. Land, air, and water quality are deteriorating, and recently the government announced plans to explore a green accounting system to calculate environmental costs related to economic growth. Joining me to discuss its potential is Elizabeth Economy. She's a senior fellow at the New York City-based think tank, the Council on Foreign Relations, and author of The River Runs Black, The Environmental Challenge to China's Future. Elizabeth, hello. Hello, Steve. Now, you write that the roots of many of China's current environmental problems stem from its past. And in particular, you you point at Mao Zedong's cultural revolution. Could you explain what you mean by this? Um, Sure. Even before Mao Zedong, I think um, it's important to understand uh, that China has uh, degraded its environment for centuries. You know, a lot of people ask me, uh, well, how does China really differ from the United States? I mean, it's just going through its process of industrialization, just as we did, and you can expect uh, there to be environmental costs and consequences. But the point that I try to make is that China is starting from a very different place uh, than the United States did. Uh, You know, war was really a constant fixture in China uh, for centuries. And this meant that you had rampant deforestation for fuel. They were mining for ore. Uh, And then these wars were followed by periods of very rapid uh, economic development and growth in which the leaders would try to reclaim land for agriculture. But the the land was uh, already eroded. This contributed to desertification. And another sort of interesting fact was that uh, the population issue in China, again, one that people think is a relatively recent one, uh, the fact that China does have about a fifth of the world's, a little bit over a fifth of the world's population, population pressures were already felt by 1,400. Uh, There were already 100 million people. 
And by the Tang Dynasty, uh, roughly 600 AD, uh, there were already reports of areas in China where overpopulation was a problem, uh, where there were too many people for the resources uh, in the land, and you had migration uh, in search of uh, arable land and better water resources. So what you're saying then is uh, what happened under Mao Zedong in the, in the last 50 years or so is really just a reflection of what had happened centuries before. That's right. I think it provided a building block for Mao. Mao really ramped up the degradation of the environment. He, he called for nothing short of a war against nature. And you had probably some of the worst excesses uh, in Chinese history take place under Mao. Uh, you know, backyard steel furnaces, uh, moving polluting industries into pristine parts of the Chinese countryside uh, in order to protect them from what Mao believed would be uh, in, uh, you know, foreign attacks, attacks from the United States. You had the Great Leap Forward in which wetlands and forest lands uh, were reclaimed for agriculture. So you had wide-scale deforestation during this period. Uh, so there were some of the worst excesses, but I, I think it's important to understand that this is a problem that is centuries in the making. Now, of course, today uh, China is moving into the forefront of the international market uh, with an unprecedented rate of productivity and development and growth. Uh, what are the sectors that, that, that you see are, are really jumping up in terms of growth? Well, you can, I mean, at this point in time, you know, China uh, is becoming one of the largest producers of electronics. Uh, it's basically hollowing out the uh, semiconductor industries from the United States and from Taiwan. Uh, it has become the second largest importer of oil after the United States. Uh, the housing sector is booming infrastructure, roads, railroads. Uh, you could almost look at, at any area and say that, uh, you know, China's economy is, is booming. The auto sectors is another one uh, that is, has really taken off over the past few years. So as a result of this economic boom, Elizabeth, uh, what do you see are the, uh, some of the most pressing environmental challenges that, uh, that China now faces? Well, you know, at, at, at this point, demand for water, for example, uh, is growing at a rate of about 10% a year in cities and about 5% uh, for industry. Uh, but this is on top of a situation in which 60 million people in the country uh, find it difficult to get enough water for their daily needs. Uh, energy also, of course, you know, China's had traditionally an overwhelming reliance on coal a little bit over two-thirds of its uh, energy comes from coal, and oil makes up about a quarter, and the rest, a very small amount, comes from cleaner energy sources like natural gas and hydropower. And I think that uh, not only in terms of um, the demand side, where, as you probably know, China experienced wide-scale power outages over the past year, but also in terms of the pollution. Uh, you know, China today boasts uh, 16 of the 20 most polluted cities in the world. Uh, there are other issues uh, that the environment is, is having an impact on. For example, migration. Uh, the fact is that the Chinese government expects that 30 to 40 million Chinese are going to have to migrate uh, by 2025 in search of better land or because they don't have access to water. I mean, a quarter of China is desert today. Uh, and think of it in terms of the fact that the China is the same size as the United States. So imagine if a quarter of the United States were desert. Uh, and the desert is advancing very rapidly at a rate of about 900 square miles per year. And they have these sandstorms that afflict the coastal cities in Asia. Um, 
So there are these visible signs and then sort of secondary impacts that the Chinese people themselves uh, feel quite directly. Uh, recently, the Chinese government announced that it will develop a green GDP system in order to cut down on its environmental pollution. Um, please explain how this might work. Frankly, I take the attitude of I'll believe it when I see it. I think environmental natural resource accounting in this country is still relatively poorly developed. And I'm not sure how the Chinese government is planning to do this. I mean, the World Bank and some Chinese economists have done the best estimates of uh, trying to account for environmental degradation and pollution in sort of assessing where the Chinese GDP really is and in terms of what costs are being afflicted on the Chinese population and the Chinese economy from environmental degradation and pollution. Uh, but as I think the Chinese who are involved in this process have acknowledged themselves, uh, it's going to be a very difficult and complicated process. In terms of the green GDP, I've read somewhere that they're going to list environmental changes separately and their impact on economic growth. How, how would that work? Well, uh, you would look at, you know, factory shutdowns um, because of, you know, energy shortages or factory shutdowns because of uh, lack of access to water. So you might have a coal mine, for example. There's a major coal mine, Datong, uh, in central China that they estimate loses $100 million a year because it doesn't have enough water to wash its coal. So that would be the kind of thing that they would do to list the costs separately. Now, one of the things you write in your book is, is that uh, there's an estimate of what, 8 to 10 percent of the GDP in China is being lost to environmental degradation. Uh, what do you suppose accounts for this? That, that's right. These are estimates that, that began to be developed in the mid-1990s um, by the World Bank and, and also by uh, Western economists and Chinese economists working together. Those uh, numbers reflect a wide range of inputs. Uh, they include everything from the cost to the Chinese economy from workers missing days of work and being hospitalized uh, due to respiratory problems from air pollution to uh, loss of crops. Uh, because of contaminated water, because of acid rain, to factories being shut down uh, because of loss of water, and also, I should say, you know, agricultural land being lost from desertification. So these numbers include a uh, full range of environmental inputs. Um, help me understand the thinking of the Chinese government. Why tackle China's environmental problems from an economic standpoint? What's the advantage in doing that? Well, I think that it's it's part of a broader move within the Chinese government as it transitions from a socialist command economy uh, to a market economy and sort of use the economy in some ways to advance uh, environmental protection. Uh, for example, you have China experimenting with practices that were developed in the United States, for example, on tradable emissions permits for sulfur dioxide. Uh, I, I think there's there's definitely, it's an admirable goal. Uh, the question is only, how is it actually going to be effected? Tell me, what's at stake for the United States in all of this? What interest is there for Americans in China's environmental future other than being world citizens? Well, I think that the interests are, are 
twofold, if if not more perhaps. Um, first of all, of course, China's environmental practices have a direct impact on uh, the global environment, uh, everything from biodiversity loss to global climate change, where China is now the second largest contributor to global climate change in the world uh, right now. Uh, the dust storms that I mentioned, the sandstorms, actually uh, not only affected Asia, um, but a few years back uh, found that the dust had traveled uh, to California and even beyond, uh, causing a spike in respiratory problems uh, on the west coast of the United States. Second, I think for anybody who's interested in trying to understand where China may be going in the future, uh, the environment is critical. There is the question of the sort of China's demand for world resources, for oil, for coal. What is, what's it going to do diplomatically and internationally? You know, are we going to find a more aggressive China in the South China Sea, for example, asserting its rights for natural gas? So there's this kind of interplay. But I also think uh, on a somewhat deeper, maybe more profound level, uh, there is the potential for the environment uh, in China to serve as a catalyst for broader political reform. Uh, and you've just begun to see in China now the environmental movement, which really began only a decade ago with China's first environmental NGO, move from sort of environmental education to very aggressive lobbying of the government and to change policy, you know, preventing dams from being built. Uh, so these are the kinds of developments that I think are important to understand for anyone who's interested in understanding the future of China. Elizabeth Economy is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. She's author of The River Runs Black, The Environmental Challenge to China's Future. Elizabeth, thanks so much for taking this time with me today. Thank you, Steve. Coming up, as China's population and its economy grows, it's running out of land to farm and water to grow crops. But it does have plenty of money to buy food from abroad, says my next guest. And soon, he predicts, we'll feel rising food prices in our own wallets. Stay tuned to NPR's Living on Earth. Welcome back to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. If you don't like the way prices have been rising at the gasoline pump these days, you may soon have another budget worry higher food prices. In the past seven months, the price of soybeans has doubled, as China has bought up 13 percent of the world's supply to make up for a declining harvest. Rice is up by 80 percent, and wheat is up as well. Over the years, grain prices can go up and down, but according to former Agriculture Department official Lester Brown, these recent whopping increases may well be reflecting some fundamental changes in the forces that affect the world's food supply. Lester Brown is now president of the Earth Policy Institute and author of Plan B, Rescuing a Planet Under Stress and a Civilization in Trouble. Lester Brown, you say food is going to cost us a lot more. How come? There are two new environmental trends that are now affecting the food prospect. One is falling water tables, and they're falling in scores of countries around the world um, as a result of overpumping. This is historically uh, a new trend, one we've not had much experience with because we didn't have the pumping capacity that mm -hmm. we, we, we have today. Diesel pumps, powerfully electrically driven pumps, enable us to literally deplete aquifers, and that's what's happening. It's happening in China, it's happening in India, it's happening in the United States, just to cite the big three grain producers that account for half the world grain harvest. So spreading water shortages are now beginning to, are, are making it more difficult for farmers to expand food production fast enough to keep up with the 70 million people being added each year. 
The second new trend that's making it more difficult for them is higher temperatures. In many cases, crop withering temperatures. Recent research by crop ecologists indicate that the crop yields are much more sensitive to temperature than we'd earlier realized. Um, and so we're seeing, last year we saw um, crop uh, yields sharply reduced in India and the United States because of intense heat and, um, and the drought that often comes as a result of it. And, and this year it was Europe that, that really bore the brunt of, uh, of higher temperatures. Okay, but you say that we're going to see higher food prices, mm -hmm. uh, the impact of, of what's going on environmentally in just this next year or two or three. Mm -hmm. Why now? For the last eight years, world grain production has been flat. It has not increased at all. But the demand has continued to rise. So for the last four years, world grain production has fallen short of consumption. So these harvest shortfalls have been covered by drawing down world grain stocks, which at the end of this year will be at the lowest level in 30 years. We've only been this low once before. When was that? 1972-74, when wheat and rice prices doubled. That's when the Soviets secretly cornered the world wheat market in 1972, and then we had a poor harvest the next year, and, and things got pretty, pretty hairy there for a while. Um, so we're now looking at uh, very low uh, stocks. We're looking in, at each of the last two years of a crop shortfall, a grain shortfall of 90 million tons. And the big question is whether next year the world's farmers can dig their way out of this 90 million ton hole and feed 70 million more people. You um, don't think they can? It's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult. It's not impossible. If we had really good weather in all the major food-producing regions, they could probably do it. But that rarely ever happens. So how does China figure into this? China's a big part of the world, and part of the, uh, the shortfalls are coming in China. Um, from 1950 to 1998, China increased its grain harvest from 90 million tons to 392 million tons. It was one of the great economic success stories of the last half century. But then, in 1998, it peaked and it's been declining since then, partly because of water shortages. China's grain harvest had dropped from 392 million tons in 1998 to 326 million tons in 2003. So in five years, it's dropped by more than 60 million tons. That's more than the Canadian grain harvest, just to put it in perspective. It's also more than the exports of Canada, Australia, and Argentina combined. Okay, so what you're saying is that the... China's growing less and less grain for itself. And its demand is going up each year. Okay. And you're saying this is going to raise world food prices. Mm -hmm. China's been covering this shortfall, this downturn, over the last four years or so by drawing down their stocks. They had huge stocks, but those stocks are now largely drawn down. They may be able to draw down one more year at most. And then they're going to have to come to the world market to cover this shortfall. And when they do, they'll be, they'll be wanting to import more grain than any country's ever imported in history. Um, and when they come to the world market, they will necessarily come to the United States because we control almost half the world's grain exports. And this is going to create a fascinating geopolitical situation because it's almost inevitable that we're going to see this. That is, 1.3 billion Chinese consumers with a $100 billion trade surplus with the United States competing with us for our food and driving up food prices. Now, you just came back from China. What did you see that uh, lends credence to your view that they're going to have a serious food problem in this next year or two? Well, 
For example, traveling by train from Beijing to um, the capital of Inner Mongolia, Hohot, and then from there to Longzhou in the upper Yellow River Valley across the northern part of China, um, you see sand dunes, for example. You'll be going through a uh, a plain that's, that's uh, irrigated and green, and suddenly, out of nowhere, you'll see sand dunes 10 feet tall. And these are dunes that are forming because of a loss of vegetation in the in the unirrigated area, away from the from the river uh, floodplains, for example. China has enormous numbers of cattle and uh, and sheep, um, goats. In this country, we have 97 million head of cattle. China has 127 million head. We have 8 million sheep and goats in this country. China has 280 million sheep and goats, most of them in the northern and western part of the country. They're literally devegetating the country. I mean, you can see it. You see them everywhere um, as you travel about the uh, the country, and you see the drifting sand and the sand dunes. Um, you see along the railroad tracks, for example, um, you know how we put up snow fences to trap drifting mm-hmm. snow to keep it off of highways. They they do things like that for sand. Because when sand covers the tracks, um, the trains can't get through. If it's snow, trains are heavy enough to handle snow, but they can't handle, handle sand. They'll often derail. So it, it's a serious challenge to so the transportation system. Um, to keep it functioning, you have to keep the sand off the tracks. So I'm wondering if you feel that China's headed for a crash that is, has expanded... Uh, perhaps developed itself too quickly in in an unsustainable way uh, and will face great troubles in the years ahead. In economic terms, I mean, they're, an, you know, they get an A-plus in terms of economic growth, uh, reducing poverty, uh, eradicating most of the hunger in the country. Um, and China today has a, has a food cushion. It's not that China is on the verge of starvation. It's, it's that China is growing and consuming more and more food and is going to begin to need a lot of that from the outside world. And it's the effect of that on the outside world that is of, of major concern to, uh, to me and to the U.S. intelligence community uh, as well because uh, China has the purchasing capacity. The $100 billion trade surplus that China has with the United States now is enough to buy the entire U.S. grain harvest twice. So, I mean, that's just the surplus they have with us. So it's not a question of can they afford to compete with us for our grain. They can, um, and they will. Lester Brown is author of Plan B, Rescuing a Planet Under Stress and a Civilization in Trouble. Thanks for taking this time with me today. My pleasure, Steve. Thank you. When it comes to counting all the beans on Wall Street and in Washington, D.C., the only cookbook that matters is the gross domestic product, or GDP. If the gross domestic product is going up, people say the economy is growing. If the GDP is falling, they say we're in a recession. Whichever way it goes, investors, business folks, voters, and presidential candidates use the GDP as an indicator of how well the nation is doing. The GDP is supposed to measure the total production and consumption of goods and services in the United States. But the numbers that make up the gross domestic product by and large only capture the monetary transactions we can put a dollar value on. Almost everything else is left out. And that's why some economists have a problem with this influential accounting system. At a playground in Cambridge, Massachusetts, a child is being attended by a daycare center employee. Her wages add to the GDP. Nearby, another child is being watched over by his grandmother. 
but under GDP accounting rules, Granny's contribution has no economic value. The concept of the GDP was developed to help steer the U.S. economy out of the Great Depression and through World War II. It was developed as a means of measuring economic output and, in fact, for planning purposes during the uh, war period. Professor Graham Davis is an economist at the Colorado School of Mines. But the public and the press and probably some economists have fallen into the trap of using GDP and more specifically growth in GDP as an indication of economic progress. Professor Davis cites coal mining as an example of how the gross domestic product number can be a misleading growth indicator. So every time we mine a ton of coal, GDP goes up by $17 a ton, but that doesn't take into account the fact that we've harvested one ton of coal from the earth and that ton of coal is no longer there. So-called green accountants would add in depletion, says Professor Davis, and when you do that, the numbers start to change. The value to society uh, of that ton of coal in GDP terms it would be about $17 for West Virginia coal. In green income terms, it would be about $5.50. And this adjustment only accounts for the decrease of coal in the ground and the depreciation of the equipment used to mine it. It does not consider a potentially larger human cost. I, uh, I mean, I've contacted black lung and also my hearing. I can't hear anything. James Scarborough is a retired West Virginia coal miner. He spent almost 32 years working in the mines. How does it affect me now? Well, I can't do much work. I mean, I can get out here and I can work a little bit, but, you know, I've got to gauge myself as, as I go about it. I've been in the hospital in and out for, I bet you, it's an emergency room 10 or 15 times, and it's with the symptoms of a heart attack. But Mr. Scarborough's medical bills aren't subtracted from the economic value of coal. Indeed, under the accounting system used by the gross domestic product, his illness actually adds to the GDP. That's because medical costs to treat black lung disease add to the economy. So does the cost of cleaning up abandoned mines. If a coal slurry impoundment escapes and ruins miles of rivers, cleaning up that mess adds dollars to the GDP, too. So in this case, environmental degradation looks good for the economy. We add together benefits and costs and changes in inventory. Everything goes in. We don't subtract anything. That's Professor Herman Daly. He's an economist at the University of Maryland School of Public Affairs. He says a key flaw of the GDP is that it ignores core accounting principles of business. A firm always has two accounts. They have a benefit, a cost account, and a cost account. They have their revenue account and their expenditure account. They never add the two together. That would be the height of silliness. But that's exactly what we do with GDP. So some economists would argue that these are examples of some fundamental problems with the gross domestic product. We don't measure unpaid work or services that may benefit society. We treat some expenses as income, and we often fail to value natural resources. Back in 1993, the Bureau of Economic Analysis, the official bookkeeper of the U.S. economy, began responding to concerns that the GDP needed retooling. Director Steve Landefeld says the agency began working on a green accounting system called Integrated Environmental and Economic Accounts. We went forward in trying to do, in a best practice kind of way, a set of basic accounts where we began with the, frankly, more easily measurable commodities, such as petroleum and other mineral resources. In 1994, what we did was we tried to put together what we called a prototype set of accounts. The estimates were fairly significant. 
These initial results, released in 1994, showed that GDP numbers were overstating the impact of mining companies to our nation's economic wealth. Mining companies didn't like those results, and it didn't take long for Capitol Hill to react. Alan B. Mollahan, a Democratic House representative from West Virginia's coal country, sponsored an amendment to the 1995 appropriations bill that stopped the Bureau of Economic Analysis from working on revising the GDP, and that's where things stand today. The Bureau of Economic Analysis is still not doing any work on revising the GDP in a way that considers such things as environmental impact accounting. By the way, if the bureau had focused its first work exclusively on forests instead of looking at coal and oil, the numbers might have been more appealing to present critics. Natural regrowth of trees has increased the economic value of our nation's forests by approximately two to three and a half percent annually over the last half century. So, in some instances, accounting for the environment might actually boost economic indicators. Meanwhile, back at the playground in Cambridge. We are reminded of the work of sociologist Julia Chore. She's been counting up the unpaid service part of our economy, from meals cooked at home to volunteers at local hospitals. It turns out that the stuff we do that we don't get paid for is almost as big, not quite anymore, because the market sector has been increasing its the fraction of human labor that it covers now. People are spending more of their time in the market, but it's a very, very large economy that's not included. Almost as large as the one we measure. If the meal cooked at home is worth as much or more as the one served by a single mother employed at the local fast food joint, it changes the calculus of such programs as workfare. And if a tree that's growing is worth as much or even more than one that is cut, that changes the calculus of forestry. Rethinking of how we measure our economy raises broad questions. But Juliet Shore cautions that new statistics alone are not the answer. We need new statistics. Without a question, but if we got the new statistics tomorrow, it wouldn't have solved the problem. We need a lot more than that. We also need a new set of incentives. We need new awareness. We need new kinds of human behavior. We need new power relationships. Those other things are really fundamental to making new statistics effective. Still, Professor Herman Daly says one needs to start somewhere with correcting these numbers. This really has nothing to do with green or brown or anything. It is just good economics. Our story on green accounting was produced by Gernot Wagner. Just ahead, the private lives of bears. First, this environmental health note from Cynthia Graber. Recent reports have linked the use of antidepressants by children and teenagers to an increased risk for suicide. So the Food and Drug Administration is recommending that certain drugs not be used by adolescents because of this risk. Now, a new study shows just how much is at stake. According to a report published in this month's issue of Psychiatric Services, the number of kids taking antidepressants grew by almost 50 percent from 1998 to 
Preschoolers were the fastest growing group of all, with use among girls doubling and use among boys up by 64%. Researchers also say that the number of children taking antidepressants increased by almost 10% each year over the past five years, and they expect this trend to continue, even though studies show that the drugs are only modestly effective at treating depression within this group. The scientists involved in the study had no conclusive reason for the increase in drug use. They point to increasing rates of childhood depression, a growing awareness of depression by doctors, and a shift away from mental health services like psychotherapy in favor of pharmaceutical treatments as possible factors. But the researchers were clear on one conclusion. They say more work is needed to determine the appropriateness of prescribing antidepressants to youngsters, one of the most vulnerable patient populations. That's this week's Health Note. I'm Cynthia Graber. And you're listening to NPR's Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and Aveda, an earth-conscious beauty company committed to preserving natural resources and finding more sustainable ways of doing business. Information available at Aveda.com. The Noyce Foundation, dedicated to improving math and science instruction from kindergarten through grade 12. The Annenberg Foundation and the Kellogg Foundation, helping people help themselves by investing in individuals, their families, and their communities on the web at wkkf.org. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, and coming up, the first breath, or sniff, of spring. But first, black bears. They're coming back in earnest in the eastern United States. Where I live, about an hour outside of Boston, a mother bear and her cub were spotted just down the road apiece. And last fall in New Jersey, there were so many black bears, the state held its first bear hunt in more than three decades. Bear and human interactions are way up in many parts of the country, ranging from backyard encounters to bears entering homes to raid kitchens. And one researcher says any problems lay with the attitudes of humans. Diane Toomey has this profile of bear scientist Lynn Rogers. It's a chilly morning on the Massachusetts side of the Berkshire Mountains. About a dozen people are gathered here today in black bear country in the hopes of tracking a bear. I'm here to meet people who like bears and to learn something. But even among this crowd, there's a bit of trepidation. This woman recently had a close encounter with a bear right outside her glass front door. I was face to face with this bear looking in, and and that really scared me. So, but I love the bears that I'm trying to work through that experience. For that kind of fear, there's no better therapist than wildlife biologist Lynn Rogers. When a bear shows up in somebody's yard, whether that's a nuisance or a joy depends on the person's attitude. 64-year-old Lynn Rogers, six feet tall with shoulders to match, looks like, you guessed it, a bear. He even sounds a bit like Smokey, that most famous of black bears. And when the group picks up the trail of a bear and Rogers stops to investigate, you'll see he shares some of the animal's tastes. Here's one the bear missed. Mm. I like nuts and berries. This is a beech nut. Really good. (laughs) Bears are no dummies. Rogers began his research 35 years ago in northern Minnesota, studying basic bear biology. He was the first researcher to draw blood from wild hibernating bears and did pioneering work in describing the matriarchal nature of bear society, in which mothers bequeath part of their territory to daughters. 
His research, using radio telemetry to follow as many as four generations of family groups, has been praised by E.O. Wilson as one of the greatest wildlife studies of all time. But Rogers eventually turned to what he describes as the least studied area of bear biology, the bear-human interface. There's people making a living trying to scare us about bears, telling and retelling the stories of killings by bears. But there's only been 52 killings by black bears in the last 100 years across North America. So for every human killed by a black bear, Rogers says, 45 are killed by dogs, 120 by bees and hornets, and 60,000 people are killed each year by a fellow human. That's why I feel safest walking in the woods right next to a bear. With the help of tracker John McCarter, the group is walking through a light dusting of snow in the hopes of backtracking a bear, tracing its movements back in time and moving away from the actual animal. But it looks like we've gotten too close for comfort. And see how the leaves are all scuffed down? The bear stopped abruptly here. And if you look, look right down there where the bear was facing, that points down to the swamp we were in earlier. And then the, the bear did a 45-degree turn here, hard and fast, and ran out that way. It shows just the extent to which bears try to avoid people. Mm -hmm. here's, a, here's a bear 200, 300 yards from us, and uh, not only did it avoid us, I mean it ran to get away from us, and we were still that far away. Rogers' knowledge of black bears comes from a unique perspective a distance of about five to ten yards. It's a research technique no one else has tried with bears. After like hundreds of hours of trying to get near, near a bear and get it to accept me, finally I get to the point where I can walk with it, sleep with it, record detailed data as it ignores me. I'm not a friend, I'm not an enemy, I'm not a competitor, I'm not a food giver, I'm just there. On these 24-hour walks, Rogers carries no food or water, barely sleeps, and just simply observes. And the bears just go about their business of making their living, uh, tearing open logs to get ants, foraging for berries or hazelnuts, whatever. I, I learn their, their vocalizations and body language and how they raise their cubs. I learn what bears are really like. While Rogers may acclimate a bear to his presence in one part of the forest, he says that same bear may be spooked by him in another. So to get past this, Rogers often does something that sounds pretty dangerous. Sometimes you have to wait till they have cubs. Then when the mother's in there, there with the cubs, that kind of holds her in place. They can set up a little office outside that den uh, with a sleeping bag, a laptop computer, and a cell phone. And they got to just get used to me being there. And uh, by the time they emerge in the spring, I'm just part of the part of the woodwork. Or part of the family, as he puts it. This technique wouldn't be possible with a grizzly bear. That's because grizzly mothers are hardwired to protect their cubs. Indeed, 70% of grizzly killings are by mothers doing just that. But Roger says no one has been killed by a black bear defending offspring. He has a theory about why this species has, in his words, come to be ruled by fear. I think part of it goes back to the Ice Ages when they were living along such powerful predators as saber-toothed cats, American lions, dire wolves, powerful predators. Black bears wouldn't have stood a chance against any of them, but black bears could survive because they were the only one that could climb a tree 
and they had this attitude of run first and uh, ask questions later. The timid ones apparently passed on their genes, and they seem to have developed a mind more of a prey animal than that of a predator. Rogers has even gotten to the point where he can place a radio collar on an acclimated black bear without tranquilizers, using only a can of condensed milk as a distraction. Rogers is quick to warn that touching a bear is usually one of the quickest ways to get bitten or slapped, and that his acclimated bears still maintain their fear of other humans, even when he is with them. Back in the forest, the group has come across more proof that they're on the right trail. Right here. Hey, what's it made out of? It's bear poop, or scat, as it's known in the business. Yeah. I'm not going to ask anybody to taste this scat, but I would like to have everybody smell it. I see bears are such wonderful animals that their scat doesn't even stink. <laughs> Rogers pulls the scat apart and finds lots of beech nut hulls. He says under normal conditions, bears prefer that kind of natural food to things like backyard grills or dog chow. But there's research that disputes that. And Rogers has garnered criticism for his research techniques as well. Some say because they're habituated to his presence, his bears are less likely to fear other people, placing both animal and human in jeopardy. This haunting sound is being made by a black bear. Some people have described it as a growl. Because if a person is afraid of an animal, any sound they make will be interpreted as a growl. But it's just their moan of fear. The bear is sitting up in a tree in abject terror. Also, you always hear this uh, blowing and chomping. They blow and then clack their teeth together. Just means the bear is scared. And then there's this scenario. A, a mother at the base of a tree. Cubs are up the tree. Somebody comes near. The bear gathers itself, lunges forward, slams his feet down hard, makes the ground shake. People interpret it as a, an aggressive bear. It means the bear is nervous. It's no more threatening than when a deer stomps its hoof and snorts. Rogers says in 35 years of research, he's never heard a bear growl or had one try to attack him. This is the end of the trail. At the base of a red maple tree, the group spots a bear-sized depression in the leaf litter. This is the bed right here, John? This is the bed at the base of the tree between these logs. No tracks leading out look except at, to defecate. Look at all this sign of where it laid on that log. And you know, kind of squash down snow. Most researchers agree that black bears pose less of a danger than a lot of people realize. But Rogers has chosen to take that message out on the road, to become an advocate for the animal at a time when black bears and people are increasingly entering each other's territories. Perhaps for Rogers, it's his way of showing gratitude. I never thought I'd have the privilege of walking right next to a bear and viewing the forest through the bear's reactions, what it's uh, focusing its ears on, what it's looking at, uh, what it's sniffing on the forest floor. And uh, it just opened my eyes to a new view of the forest. Rogers is currently following seven radio-collared bears near his home base in Eli, Minnesota. And he's working to establish a bear education center there as well. Rogers says bears can coexist with us. The question for him is, are we willing to coexist with them?
For Living on Earth, I'm Diane Toomey in Charlemont, Massachusetts. Somebody's been sleeping in my bed and it's all messed up. Talk about evil. Goldilocks was the evil one. Yeah. She took, took advantage of these poor bears. They had a beautiful home, beautiful beds, lots of food. and weren't bothering anybody. The poet Robert Lowell once wrote that you can tell when it's skunk hour because the little critters, quote, march on their souls up Main Street, white stripes, moonstruck eyes, red fire. Commentator Verlin Klinkenborg says he knows skunk hour best when he smells it. You don't really notice a skunk's smell. It notices you. It loiters in the air, nearly sentient, waiting to knock you down, strong enough to make you wonder how a skunk can smell anything but itself. I walked into a fresh scent on my way to the barn one morning a couple of weeks ago. A skunk could have been probing the wire around the chicken yard, but there were no signs of digging in the snow. It might have been testing the duck pen, but there were no tracks there either. In the warmth of that afternoon, I heard the sound of bees, and then I saw where the sound was coming from. The skunk had attacked a corner of one of the hives in the night. Its claws hadn't done much damage, only enough to open a crack which the bees were trying to patch up with propolis. The month was still too cold for them. They wouldn't have been out without the skunk's provocation. But there was the answer to one of winter's most pressing questions. Are the bees still strong in the hive? A farm is naturally a place of bold scents, though most of them seem to have been bottled up by the sharp cold of this past winter. A thaw releases them. Early spring suddenly smells like a very old barnyard. It hits me how long it's been since I last cleaned the hen house. But the real sign of the thaw we've been having is the skunks. They begin to come out into the margins of daylight in the same week the highways start to heave with frost. To drive around here is to feel your way along a lurching roadway from one slick of skunk scent to the next. Sometimes I pass a skunk just changing its mind at the edge of my headlights. More often I see those that kept right on going and didn't make it. They leave in the air an immortality all their own. That evening I knocked together the corner of the hive that had been clawed apart. A couple of bees spurted out and droned around my head, but they weren't entirely serious. I've heard that a skunk will disturb a hive not to get at the honey, but to eat the bees that mob him. I've also heard that a skunk's smell can travel well more than a mile downwind. They say, in fact, that skunks in winter don't really hibernate. They den up five or six females with one male and sleep deeply through the cold weather. The least thaw rouses them to hunger and desire. They stir from their nests and amble down to the road, as if drawn there by something only skunks can know. They wait in the night, trying to decide if the highway selects for boldness or hesitation. Should have looked right. They didn't see the station wagon car. The skunk got squashed. And there you are. You got your dead skunk in the middle of the road. Dead skunk in the middle of the road. Dead skunk in the middle of the road. Stinking the high heaven. 
Klinkenborg writes about the rural life for the New York Times and is a frequent contributor to Living on Earth. Take a whiff on me, that ain't no rose. Roll up your window and hold your nose. You don't have to look and you don't have to see. Cause you can feel it in your old factory. You got your dead skunk in the middle of the road. Dead skunk in the middle of the road. Dead skunk in the middle of the road. And it's sticking to high heaven. You can hear our program anytime on our website, the address is livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. You can reach us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. Our postal address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. And you can call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. For this week, that's Living on Earth. Next week, the U.S. Supreme Court is about to step into the fight over Vice President Cheney's Energy Task Force. Environmentalists are suing for access to task force records, and they are finding some unexpected allies. I personally am pretty conservative on environmental issues. I would like to see uh, the Alaska wilderness further open to oil development. Heck, I'd like to see an oil derrick in the Potomac if necessary. That's Tom Fitton of Judicial Watch one of Washington's most conservative groups, and he agrees that the Bush administration should come clean about how its energy policy was crafted. You know, I may have voted for Dick Cheney, or I may have voted for George Bush, but I consider it, you know, kind of being like the cop who pulls over the mayor. You know, I voted for you, Mr. Mayor, now here's your ticket, and show up in court. And this is, this is the equivalent here. The vice president and his energy policy, next time on Living on Earth. And between now and then, you can hear us anytime and get the stories behind the news by going to livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. We leave you with an audio clue that spring has arrived for us northerners. Chris Watson recorded this nightingale in Cambridgeshire, England, where the bird has come to breed after its annual migration from its winter home in West Africa. Living on Earth is produced for the World Media Foundation by Chris Ballman, Eileen Belinsky, Jennifer Chu, Cynthia Graber, Ingrid Lobet, and Jeff Young. You can find us at livingonearth.org. 
Paul Wabrek engineered this program with help from Nal Taro and Al Avery, who also runs our website. Allison Dean composed our themes. Environmental sound art, courtesy of Earth Ear. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, cultured soy, and smoothies. 10% of their profits are donated to support environmental causes and family farms. Learn more at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations, the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues, and the Wellborn Ecology Fund. This is NPR, National Public Radio.